Let's pray together. Would you bow with me? Father in heaven, as we turn our attention to your word, God, we ask that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, and open our minds to the truth, to the clarity, Father, of your word. Your word is perfect and sufficient in every way. And so, Lord, we ask that you would move and that you would speak in spite of the messenger, Lord, that your message would be made clear, that there is hope in you, that you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life, and that no one can enter into your kingdom can call you their father. No one can call you their friend except through Jesus our Christ. Lord, would you encourage us this morning? Father, would you challenge us? Lord, would you convict us? We ask all these things in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible with you this morning, and I hope that you do, I encourage you to take it and turn with me once again to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking at the Beatitudes once again as we continue in our sermon series, marching our way through these Beatitudes. Our focus this morning will be on verse 9. So our focus will be Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. We will read verses 1 through 12, and then I will circle back and reread verse 9. When I have completed the reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and I encourage you to respond with a hearty thanks be to God. So before we begin, however you may be accessing the word of the Lord, whether in print or digital format, I would ask if you're physically able, would you please stand out of reverence for the public reading of God's holy word. As We look together now, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As we return to this sermon series this morning, I want to remind us that Jesus presents to us the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes serve as what Philip instructed us in last week, a preamble to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes, we call them the Beatitudes from the Latin word beatus, which just means blessed. So this idea of being blessed, or as some would say, blessed, the idea of blessing is wrapped up in being considered to be blessed by God, being considered to be favored by God, being happy and joyful and content in a way that is deep in our souls, not a momentary fleeting emotion. And this 
section of Beatitudes also shows us, it, it serves so many purposes, it also shows us who Jesus is, and it shows us who we are to strive to be. So as we look through these Beatitudes, he sits down, he opens his mouth to teach them, and when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus will exemplify what it means to be poor in spirit as he continues through his ministry. And the kingdom of heaven truly, beyond any shadow of a doubt, belongs to him. Blessed are those who mourn. Don't you remember as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and he mourns and he weeps over Jerusalem, Jesus wept in John eleven thirty five. All of these epitomize who Jesus is. Blessed are the meek. Remember, we spoke about meekness and how that Greek word praus means power under control. Jesus was the epitome of meekness. At any moment, he could have snapped his fingers. He could have said the word and ascended back into heaven and had all of existence wiped from existence and said, be no more, and there would have been no more. And yet his whole life, his whole ministry, his whole time on earth, even as they're beating him, even as they're mocking him and making fun of him, he continues in meekness to control that power and chooses to be gentle because that's what the situation calls for. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you not remember when the woman at the well is there in John chapter 4 and he sends the disciples to get him something to eat? And then when they come back, they say, well, did you already get something to eat? And he says, I have food that you know nothing about. Jesus hungers and thirsts for righteousness, not just for bread and water. Then he says, blessed are the merciful. If ever there was someone who was merciful, it is Jesus, our Messiah. It is Jesus, the Christ. All of us deserve death and hell and separation from God but in His mercy, He took on flesh to walk among us. He is merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, just as Philip talked about last week. That's a purity, being free from contamination. The contamination of sin never affected Jesus, our Christ. Even though He was tempted and tried in every way as we are, as Hebrews tells us, He never was he never did succumb to sin in any way. He was pure in every sense. And now we come to verse 9 this week. Blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. Now, I want us to focus on peace this morning. Because Jesus is a peacemaker, and we should strive to make peace the way that Jesus made peace, let's talk about peace. Just as Philip alluded to in the opening prayer. In biblical terms, when we see the word in Hebrew shalom, which means peace, or we see the Greek word irene, which means peace, it's talking about a lot more than just the absence of conflict. It's not a Cold War type of peace where there are no shots technically fired, but there's a very odd truce. No, no, no. We're talking about peace that means the full restoration of the relationship. That means that if two countries were at war and there's a peace treaty that is signed, then there is trade that takes place between those countries. Those countries consider each other friendly in every way. If there was a wall that was dividing two neighbors and a piece of that wall broke off, then in Hebrew they would say that that wall did not have shalom, that that wall did not have peace. It wasn't full. It wasn't whole. It wasn't well. 
And that's the idea of peace. Every brick in place. No cracks, no fissures, no separation, but complete restoration. And so with that understanding of peace, I think there's two ways that we can achieve peace like that. There's a very peaceful way to achieve that peace through reconciliation, right? Somebody comes and they cut you off, they get out of their car, they apologize to you profusely, they move their car out of the way to make restoration, and then you park in the parking spot and you guys are at peace, right? That's a peaceful way of making peace. You sign a treaty to say that we're going to stand with one another. It's, it's like NATO. We say that if one of our allies is attacked, then we will attack just as if we had been attacked, if any of these certain nations, and we made this treaty in peace times, and we say we are at peace with one another. That's, that's one way of, of making peace, of reconciling, of, of sitting down and having a conversation, of making the appropriate restoration. And then there's another way to have peace. The other way to have peace is what every villain in every movie, in every book, seems to say over and over again. This is even what Adolf Hitler thought and proclaimed to all the German people as a part of the Nazi party. If we take over the world and if we get rid of the Jews, then we will establish peace throughout all the world. A peace that is formed through military conquest and forced submission. You have peace that is achieved through reconciliation, and then you have peace that is achieved through absolute and total conquest. Forcing your opponent into submission, forcing them to be at peace with us. So I just want us to take some time this morning to look at these two different types of peace. Jesus is a peacemaker in both ways. He's a peacemaker through reconciliation because this is what Jesus did. What we forget so commonly is that we were enemies of God. This is not something simple. We, we like to minimize our sin and think, oh, I'm just not that bad. No. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. That we were not alive. There was no hope for us. Not drowning, but drowned, dead under the water. We are enemies of of God. We are hostile to God. There is war that is going on and Jesus shows up on the scene to reconcile what's going on in this war, to bring these two sides back together. That's the ministry of reconciliation that Jesus gives to us. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 12 through 19. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 12 through 19. Remember at that time, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The, the amazing thing is that we talk about this idea of peace where it's a wall that is whole. Jesus said, I'm going to make peace by destroying the entire wall so that there is no separation whatsoever. 
Remember, he told them that he would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days, talking about his very body. And when he died, the temple curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from everybody else, it tore from top to bottom. This is how Jesus made peace. It cost him his life. He himself is our peace. There should be no peace. But because Jesus became peace for us, we can now have peace with God. Because of what it says, verse 15, he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Guys, I know that this might sound a bit lofty, but this is absolutely incredible. This is how Jesus took two parties that were utterly at war using every mechanism of fighting that they could against one another. And Jesus stood in the middle and said, there will be no more fighting. There is a ceasefire now. We are putting to death the law. We are putting to death sin. And he does it in his own body, in his own blood. He came in verse 17. He came and preached peace to those of you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. So then we're no longer strangers, we're no longer aliens, but we're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Don't miss that he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. The way that Jesus made peace for us is so that no longer would we be strangers, no longer would we be enemies, but we would be in God's very household, considered a part of God's family. Now listen, I know we all have messed up members in our family. We all have odd situations that go on in our family, but we're talking about a perfect family. We're talking about a family that God is the head of the family, that he is the Father Almighty, and we get to call Jesus our brother, a co-heir with Christ, that we would inherit everything that Jesus is going to get, and he gives it to us freely. How many times have we seen families absolutely ripped to shreds by debating and fighting over pennies when somebody passes away? The estate has to go into probate. They have to squabble over every little tiny detail of what was left and what's my inheritance and what goes to me and what goes to you. And we watch families fall apart and then never talk to one another ever again. That's, that's not Jesus. We're co-heirs with Jesus. Jesus says, not only can you have your portion for free, I'll give you my portions too. Can you believe the expense that he went to so that we could have peace? This treaty was terrible for him. He got nothing except us. And what good are we other than a bunch of betrayers and traitors? We're a treacherous bunch of sinful people. That was his win in the treaty piece of peace that he made. Folks. He gave us everything, and he, he got nothing in return other than who he purchased, us. Colossians tells us, in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The, the only way for Jesus to make peace was to pay for that peace with his blood. With his blood. How many of us, when we go to a bargaining table, when we sit down to reconcile with somebody who's wronged us, how many of us are willing to say, I know you did me wrong, but here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give up everything so that our relationship could be made whole again. Is that 
does not happen in the real world. We sit down at the bargaining table and we say, you owe me this much and you will pay what you owe me and then some for my troubles. We're selfish. We're self-centered. And if there's going to be peace, I'm going to get mine. That's our attitude. Jesus sat down at the bargaining table and he said, I know you got nothing to offer. I'll pay what you owe and I'll do it with my very blood. Who have you ever met that bargains that way, that does business in that way? Let me tell you, they don't, they don't stay in business for very long. But that's how Jesus made peace, by the blood of his cross. Look at, at verse 21, it continues. We were once alienated. We were hostile in mind. We were doing evil deeds. And now, through his blood, he's reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him, the Father. It's a terrible deal, but this is the peace that Jesus made. When Jesus talks about blessed are the peacemakers, he knows that this is what will be required for him to make peace between God Almighty, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and evil, wicked, sinful you and me. But he makes peace anyway. Romans chapter 5, Therefore, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And our hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, while we were still sinful, while we were still hopeless, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I want you to do something for me. When I read that verse this time, I'm going to reread it. And I'm going to reread, Christ died for the ungodly. In your mind, as I say ungodly, I want you to say your name. As I say ungodly, I'm going to say my name in my head. In your heart, I want us to see and read and hear that this is how peace was made. That at just the right time, Christ died for Nathan, who is ungodly. Christ died for you, who are ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. This is Memorial Day weekend, right? You know why they had to bring the draft back during World War II and during all the different times that we required the draft? Because it's really hard to get people to volunteer to lay down their lives. One will scarcely do it, even for somebody who's really good and really righteous. One will scarcely be the one willing to take a bullet for someone else, even if you know that they're one of the most noble human beings on earth. It's a rare thing to find someone who's willing to lay down their life, even for a righteous person. Though perhaps, for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows us His love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 
Folks, th- this is Jesus, the peacemaker. This is what we're supposed to emulate. This is what Jesus calls us to strive for, to reconcile in this way, even when it costs a lot, even when it demands a lot of sacrifice on our part. This is the demonstration. This is the imitation we're supposed to follow in. This is how we're supposed to imitate Jesus, by making peace the way he made peace. He didn't show up on this earth and stomp down and land like he jumped out of heaven and explode on the scene and say, all of you submit and bow right now. Instead, he came like a little baby. He was born of a virgin. Laid in a feeding trough for animals. It doesn't get more meek than that. It doesn't get more humble than that. This is how he made peace for us. And this is the model he gives us for how we are to make peace with others. That we look at others who are of the same faith as our brothers and sisters. In in Romans 8, he says in verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He took us and adopted us. You know, nobody likes to adopt the older kids. Those are always the ones that have the hardest time being adopted. It's not, it's not, it's just, well, we think of them. And I, I'm just going to say it. Many people are hesitant to adopt an older child because we think we don't know what issues and problems they've got. And I know nobody likes to say that out loud. And I know nobody likes to hear me say it right now. But even the most noble people who would adopt a child, who would foster children, the ones that get said no to the most are the older kids, the ones that are closest to aging out. Because they didn't get a say-so in how these kids were raised. They don't know what issues they've been through. We don't know what we're bringing into our household because we don't know where they've been and we don't know what kind of trauma they may have experienced. But you know what? Jesus Christ knew how messed up I am. He knows how messed up you are. He knows all your trauma. He knows all your emotional damage, all your physical damage, all your mental handicaps, all your psychological handicaps, all your physical handicaps. He knows everything about you better than you know about you. He knows everything about me better than I know about me. He knows every sin, every flaw, every strength, every weakness. And he says, you know, as messed up as you are, Nathan, I still want to adopt you. I still want to call you my son. That's how Jesus makes peace. And it's mind-blowing. But for some reason, we let it get stale and we forget. He has called you his son or his daughter, if you have placed your faith in him. You're not a reject at the adoption center. You're not somebody waiting and hoping for a family that may take a, a risk on you. We have a father who said, I'll adopt you into my family at the most expensive cost possible. And I don't care what baggage you bring with you. I want you as my child. This is how Jesus makes peace. I want us to look at just one other verse. James, I got it out of order. It's, it's back at the top. James three eighteen. 
A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is what James tells us. If it wasn't enough to say that the Beatitudes are showing us who Jesus is, and the Beatitudes are what we should emulate and seek to be like, I want us to just read the wisdom from James. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Not keep peace, make peace. Keeping peace drives everybody insane. Making peace takes sacrifice. He calls us to make peace. And when we make peace, the way that Jesus made peace, we will harvest righteousness. When we sow making peace, we harvest righteousness. This is how Jesus makes peace. And folks, I, I, I know it's, it's, we're running out of time. It's getting late. But I want you to bear with me one more second. Because I said there's two ways to make peace. And we've spent a lot of time talking about blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And all of this is true, and all of this is how Jesus has already proven that he has made peace. That's what Jesus did when he showed up when he came as a little bitty baby. All right? But that's not the only way that Jesus will make peace. I know the Adolf Hitlers and the Joseph Stalins and the evil dictators and the evil tyrants of our time want to say, if I could just conquer the world, then I could make peace. Well, let me tell you something. I would never trust a single human being with that kind of an argument, but, but I would trust somebody else with that kind of an argument. I want you to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Folks, this passage epitomizes how Jesus made peace in the reconciliatory way. And he's going to make peace in the way of conquest one day when he comes back. It's Memorial Day weekend and I just want to remind you about the Pacific theater of World War II. We often focus on the European theater, but sometimes I think we forget about all that was going on in Japan and how terrible of a nation Japan was at that time. I want, I want us to remember what happened at Pearl Harbor. And then as we fought back against the Japanese, they refused to surrender. Absolutely refused to surrender. They would rather crash their plane into our boats as kamikaze pilots, as opposed to eject, save their own life, and try and be taken captive or swim to safety or get on a lifeboat or anything else. Down to the last man, down to the last woman, down to the last child. Listen, when they tried to take Okinawa, one in every three military personnel that tried to make that invasion died. 
35% of all of those who invaded Okinawa died because as they thought people had surrendered, somebody would pull a gun out of somewhere. Somebody would drop a grenade. They would literally pull the pin on a grenade and blow themselves up in proximity to other American troops so that we would have the hardest time conquering them. They would not surrender. And it is a very controversial thing to this day. People debate all the time whether or not the bombs that were dropped should have been dropped. But President Truman was faced with an almost impossible choice. He saw the death toll at Iwo Jima. He saw the death toll at Okinawa. And he figured that the rest of the invasion of Japan would just be a repetitive case of what happened at Okinawa all across the country of Japan. They tried firebombing all over Japan. As they were invading, they dropped bombs all over Okinawa. They dropped bombs all over Tokyo. Firebombs. Over half a million people died from the bombing of Tokyo and Okinawa that were just Japanese. That's not even counting American lives lost. American lives and Japanese lives were going to be in the millions for us to continue to fight the way we were fighting in Okinawa. And the Manhattan Project had just come to completion. And so, President Truman had at his disposable two of the most deadly weapons that had ever been created in all of human history. And he chose to utilize them against the Japanese. They dropped the first bomb. Over 60,000 people died. The Japanese still refused to surrender. So then, they dropped an even bigger bomb. 135,000 people died as a result by the best estimates that we have from the second bomb. Hiroshima, Nagasaki and Hiroshima were leveled. The, the cities might as well not exist anymore. And finally, finally, the Japanese people and the emperor of Japan said we will surrender completely and totally. I want you to understand the kind of surrender that was required this is directly from the terms of surrender that the Japanese rulers had to sign. The authority, this is the last statement of the terms, the authority of the emperor and the Japanese government to rule the state shall be subject to the supreme commander for the allied powers who will take such steps as he deems proper to effectuate these terms of surrender. At that moment, General Douglas MacArthur was the one who was the supreme commander for the Allied forces. The Japanese, in order to surrender properly, had to say, we will completely of our country. We will completely give over the rule of our country to the supreme commander of the Allied forces, and we will have nothing to do. And I want you to know that from that moment on, the United States and Japan have had a very peaceful relationship because the Allied forces came in and beat them into utter and absolute submission and surrender. Folks, Jesus showed up one time as a little baby. He was laid in a feeding trough. He let people beat him and whip him until he was unrecognizable. He let people make fun of him. He let them nail him on a cross so that he could pay the penalty for our sin. And then he rose from the dead three days later and he said to his disciples he would return. And when Jesus comes back, if you've ever read the book of Revelation, when he comes back, I guarantee you he's going to be dropping bombs 
Not showing up as a little innocent baby, showing up as the conquering king. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, like it or not, because King Jesus is going to show up. And whether people rejected him their whole life or not, they're going to acknowledge that Jesus is the master, is the Lord, is the conquering king. And there will be peace. And he will make peace. He's made it through reconciliation and there'll be a day where he makes it through conquest. I just wonder, this Memorial Day weekend, is Jesus going to have to force you into surrender when he shows up and destroys the armies of the evil one with the breath of his mouth? Will you be one of the ones who falls to your knees at the tip of the sword of Jesus, the Master, and confesses too late that he is Lord, even though you don't like it? Will you accept the gift of peace that he offers to you now? The treaty that he offers right now. It was written in his own blood so that you might be saved and spared from all punishment, from all torture, because he took the punishment. You will be at peace with God one way or the other. But I beg of you this morning, accept the gift of peace that Jesus offers. And don't wait until you're forced into submission. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for the truth that is found in it. God, we thank you that you have made peace. And Lord, we even rejoice that there will be a day that every knee that has bowed and every tongue that has confessed already will celebrate as you conquer, as you come back as the ruling, reigning king. And take your place and expel all the forces of darkness. And you give us new resurrected bodies. Lord, we're excited. We look forward to that. We pray even now, your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, hasten the day when you will return as the conquering king. But Father, between now and then, we also desire that none would perish just as you desire that none would perish. So, Lord, help us to recognize the peace that you have purchased for us with your blood. Help us to accept this offer of peace that was purchased by your broken body. And, and Lord, for those of us who already know you and are already seeking to follow you, help us. God, we are so weak. We are so ineffective. We are so sinful. Lord, help us to live lives where we reconcile with one another, where we make peace following the example that you gave us of what it looks like to make peace in humility, in submission, in meekness. Lord, we want to be called your children. Would you save us and adopt us? We ask all this in the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.